I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the same way that I didn't find a passion for chemistry, I also came to the conclusion that I I, I thought credit was quite boring. (laughs) I was more interested in the fraud space. Welcome back to How to Lend Money to Strangers, the podcast about lending strategies around the world and across the credit life cycle. My very first job was building models to detect credit card fraud. Now, in my day, the biggest source of losses was counterfeited mag stripes, copied mag stripes. But the industry solved that problem with chip and pin. However, the fraudsters didn't go away. They looked for new weaknesses. In today's episode, I speak to John Cannon, He's an industry leader and advisor on all things fraud and digital ID related. John is currently an independent consultant, but until recently he was also managing director of TransUnion's Global Fraud Solutions. We talk a little bit about where those fraudsters have gone, the trends in fraud and how those have changed over his career, and the fundamental flaws in the way in which we verify identities today. Let's uh, jump into it. So, yeah, John, thanks for making the time. You know, more more than fifteen years you've been working in fraud prevention, and so I wonder maybe if you could just give a quick introduction to yourself and your career and what you've seen uh, happen to the market. I think it's probably more like more than twenty five years, and that's me feeling old now saying that. But um, in terms of career and how you end up, and I'm always interested to ask that of people how they end up in particular lines of business. But for me. I came out of university from Manchester um, with a chemistry degree, and all that taught me was that I didn't want to spend any more time in a in a lab doing chemistry anymore. So I went about looking for a job, as lots of people who come out of university do, and I joined a commercial credit reference agency. So that's how I ended up in the information industry, and just picked it up as I went, and then and was acquired by uh, Equifax. And I might get hate mail from your listeners for saying this, but. In the same way that I didn't find I had a passion for chemistry, I also came to the conclusion that I, I, I thought credit was quite boring. <laughs> I shouldn't say that on your podcast, but that's that's the truth. And so I was more interested in the fraud space and, and identity. And certainly when the AML regulations started to come into the UK, that's kind of what interested me. And that's how I ended up sort of moving over into that kind of world. So went there for a while and then called credit were sort of being founded um, as the third bureau in the UK new startup and when i got an approach it was quite exciting to to go and be part of that and there was an intention to invest in in the fraud and identity space so i, I moved over to call credit and been there through quite a period really two four-year cycles of private equity ownership and then uh, last three years with transunion acquiring the business and so becoming part of a global corporation and 
it's been an exciting time. I often look back and think, how did I end up doing a 14, nearly 15 year stint there? But each of those periods were very different. You know, the business was growing rapidly and going through a lot of change. So you know, whilst it was a long time, it felt like working for different businesses through through that period. And then more recently been sort of heading up Fraud for International, setting the go-to-market strategy as part of global fraud, working across a number of different time zones with a number of teams. Thoroughly enjoyed that. But then everything comes to an end. So I had spent a lot of time in, in the corporate world and decided I wanted to to go back and be part of something a bit more startup again. So I left TU and I thought I'd take a little bit of a break, but things don't quite work out that way. Um, very busy. And I have my own consultancy business, have doing a number of um, consultancy advisory roles with um, some smaller startup businesses that are looking to scale, set up the go-to-market strategy, product strategy in the fraud space so ended up being probably busier than I was <laughs> yeah it seems to be the way and yeah you don't need to to worry about the audience we do all things lending not just credit but I think there is also a natural level of extra interest when we talk about fraud and we can maybe touch on some of the reasons why as we go along but my first role happened to be in credit card fraud and we were always under resource but you could always count on being able to convince somebody to do you a favor off the side of the desk because you could tell a more interesting story. Do you want to just build another scorecard or do you want to help us catch some fraudsters? 20 years ago now, when it came to things like fraud and identity, it was maybe somebody would forge a document, they might try to stick their photo on somebody else's papers, print something that looks like a payslip, or they might even just make up some identity details and hope that they get through the system unchallenged. It's obviously over the last 20 years, grown far more sophisticated than that, maybe putting words in your mouth, maybe you describe it differently. But if we think through the ages of fraud, the types of fraud you've maybe seen at the forefront uh, during the various stages of that 25-year career. Yeah, I suppose, you know, the shift in technology and the way we live our lives today has changed the fraud landscape the most. And, and again, you know, if you, if you go back over that time period you're talking about, you only have to look back at some famous fraudsters from time, and I've met quite a few of them, like the, the Catch Me If You Can film. You know, most people have seen that, so can relate to it. You know, if you wanted to commit a fraud back in you know, 20 years ago, then it was very much a face-to-face, branch-based transaction, and therefore be a certain type of person to walk into a bank and try and imitate somebody to, to, to sort of get hold of money. Versus today, you know, that can be done very anonymously. And so it opens up or it becomes more attractive to a wider uh, range of people who find it easier to detach themselves from it actually being anything wrong. This is something I I talk a lot about, which is the rationalization element of psychology of fraud. So all fraudsters all have that same rationalization. In their mind, they think, well, I'm not doing any harm. It doesn't hurt anyone. And I think, you know, over that period, what you find is that trust and identity has become increasingly important because whatever it is you want to do in the digital channel, you know, as you go about your, your daily life, you may not always be aware of it, but identity plays a central role in just about everything you do. And, and in fact, you know, on a day-to-day basis, as you go about your, your daily life, you're subconsciously carrying out identity checks all the time. So whenever you meet someone, someone who you've met before, you know, your brain works out based on how they look and the location they're in, the time of day, etc. You you don't even think about it. You know, it's that person. And if you walked into work, well, when we used to be able to walk into work, 
you may walk past someone in the office and see them and every day they're sat at their desk in the same place and you may say good morning to them and carry on about your, your day. But if you walked into the office one morning and that same person had made a significant change to their appearance overnight, let's say, oh, but they'd gone from being brunette to blonde, then you'd probably do more than just say good morning. You'd probably do a double take. So the location's right, the time of day's right. Persons where you expected to see them, but there's something different about their appearance, which you don't recognize. And therefore you kind of think, is that the person? You might do a double double check and then you realize it is. And you'd say good morning. You might even, I don't know, compliment them on their hair or whatever. Let's say if you were, I don't know, in Mexico on holiday, somewhere, somewhere nice, and you saw that same person from work at the end of the bar. You, you probably wouldn't initially. You'd be unsure whether it is the actual person because, you know, it's out of context. You can't establish anything from the location or the time of day. You might ask somebody else, do you think that's such and such a body from work or whatever, before even approaching them? And that's because as, as, as human beings, we, we place a lot of emphasis on location and time. And that's no different to how businesses um, operate today. And, you know, if you, if you consider 20 years ago, a customer would be coming in through a branch door. It'd be between the hours of nine to five. And there'd be a lot of engagement. Today, that same customer may come in 24 hours a day from anywhere in the world. And they also expect an instant response, whereas 20 years ago, they might have been happy to wait around a week while you did various checks. So it's a real challenge for businesses and it presents an opportunity for fraudsters. So identities become increasingly important. But I'd also say that you know, we, we've got some big problems to solve when it comes to identity, not just in the UK, but globally. And I'd go as far as, and I've, I've said this many, many times, when you, when you really sit down and think about it, identity is in the digital world. It is broken in, in many ways. And again, I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. We spend a lot of time in trying to educate consumers around fraud. So protect your personal data, protect your identity. Don't ever give information out to fraudsters who are trying to get hold of your information so they can go and bypass systems. And, and that's a really good message to, to put out there. But the problem with it is that the moment that you want to do anything, apply for a, a loan or apply for a, a credit card or a, a current account or an online gaming, whatever it might be, at that point, even though you've been told never give your information out, like guard it with your life, the moment you apply for anything, you're asked to do exactly that. Right, you now need to give us all of your personal data and all of your information so we can verify your identity. So that's a problem because for, for people like you and I, we can probably work out when it's okay to give out information when it's not. But for, for, for huge sort of sections of the population, it's, it's problematic because not everybody is as aware of when things and what checks to look for and what to do. So example of my parents, they're in the mid 80s. You know, they, they, they struggle to know when it's OK and when it's not OK to give, give information out. So there is a problem there with identity. And I think the future direction is that it will take away the emphasis on us as consumers having to proactively provide information and will be more of a seamless picking up on attributes and things that exist in the in the digital world to be able to verify and, and establish trust without actually having to rely on consumers knowing when it's okay to give things out and when it's not. When we're moving house, I made the payment for the, you know, the down payment for the rent of the new space. And we were on a holiday at the time. And the, the bank, to their credit, they sent me an SMS. And in that SMS, it said, you need to reply today. But I didn't read the SMS because I was on holiday and it was from the bank. 
obviously in hindsight what happened because I waited more than a day, they closed my account. And I didn't know that until the day the movers were packing the house and the new landlord sort of phoned and said, where's this down payment? And I phoned the bank and they said, okay, we can verify you know, on the phone. You just need to tell me what was your phone number when you opened your account, which was the address that's linked to this. And, you know, I know some of that because I know my past addresses, but I don't know which one I had at the time I opened the bank account. So I wasn't able to pass the verification. And the questions they were asking, in my opinion, were questions that were more likely to be known by a fraudster than by a real person in the day-to-day lives. What is the name of the product of your current account? You know, I don't spend any energy understanding what my bank calls the current account. It's just the current account. You know, their marketing team might work very hard to make me remember, but I'm not sure what it's called. I don't know what date X and Y transactions run on. So it doesn't help anybody in a world where yeah, there's invariably data hacks anyway. So I'm sure there are people out there who can read off an Excel sheet, some old address of mine, and have just as good a chance that that's the one that I last used for the bank. It always makes me laugh a little bit because my late father-in-law was incredibly technophobic. He refused to use an ATM. For most of his professional life, he'd used one bank branch. And even when he moved house and moved office, he would drive into the city and go to the same bank. And his kids would be encourage him, Dad, just use the ATM around the corner. Don't do a half-hour drive just to get cash over the counter. But once they were going on holiday, and the day before, his briefcase was stolen, and it included a whole lot of his documents. And he walked into the branch, they just greeted him by name, And then they just did all the transactions because they knew who he was. And then he said, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't get that with an ATM. And I feel like while it takes a long time for organizations that need to be extra secure, that need to be extra conservative to adopt the technology, it does feel like we've finally come around to that sort of level where consumers expect that just by looking at their phone or putting their fingerprint there, they can have access to everything, that people should just know who you are as if you had been at their bank branch for 30 years. You recognize me, the machine recognizes me. It's not the, what's your mother's maiden name? I've got 10-year-old twins, the younger two. And if you want to see how the digital channel is going to kind of continue to evolve and have to evolve further, you want to look at how expectant they are of things just working and being quick and efficient and how little attention span they have when things don't work i mean if you if you distill down the the kind of digital channel and, and what we've been talking about the thing that kind of underpins it is value so why do we as consumers want to use an atm using the example you just you just gave well it's because it offers me convenience it's more convenient for me to go to an atm to get some cash out if i need cash although in this day and age it's more convenient not to have cash and but the value the value for me is convenience it's it's quicker and easier than if i had to go into a branch and wait in a line and get the cash out but that doesn't mean it offers the same value to everyone so you know your your late father-in-law that you just mentioned you know all the value that he saw the personal touch the things that he saw in the branch outweighed the convenience for him so you know different different people see value in different different ways but certainly you know, when you think of this shift to digital in recent years if i go back 10 15 years ago talking to heads of fraud in financial services or, or wherever you know their, their role would very much be focused on protecting the organization from fraud so first and foremost it's protecting the organization and in some instances that would be to the point where 
you know, if it results in lots of genuine customers not being able to get through these controls, then I don't really care about that because my job is to actually protect from fraud. And over the years, that's significantly changed now. So today, any fraud controls, any any security, anything around identity goes hand in hand with the need to provide this digital experience, this convenience um, for people. So you know, fraud controls that do knock out lots of genuine customers generally don't get a look in. So that balance between the two... And also, you know, compliance plays a part in this as well, because if you want to open an account for lots of organizations, especially in, in the regulated sector, you are expected to meet certain criteria around sort of regulation. And when it comes to identity, a lot of the foundation of that is still built on interpretation of regulation that was sort of created a you know, long, long time ago. It still exists. So you have this challenge today where there's lots of cool technology today, which can provide different aspects of identity validation and identity verification to help prove that an identity exists and that somebody actually owns that identity. But then compliance is always some, somewhere behind that. So even if you see something that's, you see some technology that you think this could really help my organization, could be a really good technological way of preventing fraud and, and identifying people, that might not translate into something that is understood from a compliance aspect, because from a compliance aspect, it needs to meet these various criteria. And until the interpretation of that regulation has been updated and changed, then that will continue. So there is that kind of lag between the two. And that's, again, a trend that I've seen a lot of over the last sort of 10 years. On the fraud side, the cost-benefit calculation is a bit different as well, whereas if the lender does a bad job modeling credit, the lender loses the money. But if they do a bad job defending against fraud, me as the innocent victim of identity theft could be in for a lifetime of pain having uh, the stolen identity undo all that damage and then still live a normal life with a protected credit bureau and such. So it does make sense that lenders need to put on more levels of conservatism than they might for credit. But the flip side is that it's also usually at the most inconvenient time for a customer. And I feel like when you're applying for a loan at a lender, you're going to be a little bit forgiving because you're looking for money. So it might be annoying. You might think, why are they still making me fill out these forms? Why are they asking me for the five years of old addresses or whatever? But I'll, I'll put up with it because I want the mortgage or I want the credit card. And, and that is obviously sometimes when fraud checks are happening too. But often we'll also get caught up in fraud checks when we're trying to access accounts we already have and we're no longer feeling like we're getting something out of the deal. So I do have a lot of sympathy for this and I try to remind myself whenever a transaction gets blocked for a fraud check or something and I have to phone the bank and sit on the phone for a few minutes and answer some questions to to get it put through. It is a tricky balance and I don't think many organizations fully appreciate that the fraud team are, are juggling that. You did mention that obviously there has been a cultural shift from fraud just saying no. But I think for many, fraud did start deep in the back office. And when it comes to who's CEO of the lending organization, who's chief product officer, you know, who's got the power in the board to make decisions, it's seldom somebody who came from fraud. And so, you know, investments and things, I think a lot of fraud teams do struggle to get those. But they are playing with quite a tricky balance, high stakes if they get it wrong, both in terms of, you know, the bad press and the losses. And also, if you stop the wrong person, 
it's a big inconvenience. Yeah, and I, and I think, and again, I've spoken about this many, many times. Tick banks, they sometimes get bad press in this space because someone's had money taken out of their accounts or whatever. And what we shouldn't forget is that, you know, the, the banks don't want fraud to occur. They don't go kind of, you know, looking for that. And they're spending huge amounts of money to defend and protect against it. And trying to balance that with making sure that the service they provide to customers is convenient and easy because, you know, you just talked about the frustration of being stopped from getting access to something. And when that happens, they don't want to inconvenience you, but they also don't want you to be a victim of fraud. We shouldn't forget, and it sounds like a, you know, I'm a massive supporter of the bank, and I am to some degree, but there are some things that, you know, you could you could sit and we could talk about banks all day, but I think certain things I, I see regularly where I, just, I, I often read articles and I think, you know, the, the article is completely ignoring the fact behind all of this, there's a bad guy, there's a, a fraudster who's gone out and uh, committed fraud, committed deception, they've taken money out of that account, whatever it might be. The bank didn't ask for that, don't want that, and they're trying to protect against it. So, you know, we shouldn't forget that. Now, I'm not saying all banks are perfect and they all adopt all controls they could. There are clearly areas where more can be done to protect consumers, and and that's right. And they do get called out on that, I think, and, and rightly so. But equally, it feels like the fraudsters have become this anonymous thing in the background that everybody ignores. And when something happens, it's either the con- consumer's fault because they didn't protect their information or it's the bank's fault because they didn't protect the consumer. And nobody really points a finger and says, actually, it's the fraudster's fault. Just on sort of identity fraud, to, again, bring your attention on how difficult the job is. Over the years, I've spent time doing a, a tour of a number of journalists of, of national newspapers. And the challenge that was set was, could I steal their identity? And without using any sophisticated technology of any way. So just using what's available and what's out there and what anybody can kind of access. and what what happened in each of those instances is that even even when they locked everything down and all of their you know financial services, all of their social media, everything, they they were felt very confident that I wouldn't be able to find anything else about them. And in every case, I was able to get a lot of detailed personal data without too much trouble. To be honest with you, I've done the same thing with executives of banks, where at events I've spent very little time and pulled up a whole raft of data because because our lives in the digital channel are out there and whether you think you've locked down facebook and nobody can see that you know think again you might have locked down your facebook settings so that people can't go in and see much of your data but then quite often things that you've liked visible in your public profile you go to most people's facebook profile and look at what they've liked people tend to like things near to where they live so local pub local shops whatever so straight away, you've got a, a, an in there, you've got someone's name, you don't know the area that they live in, and then you can start to build the profile from there. And then on top of that, then phishing techniques are advancing. Most people now know if somebody rings up and asks them for the bank account sort code, not to give it out. But if you, let's say you received an email from, I don't know, Macmillan Cancer Charity saying, hi, we can see you've liked our Facebook page, really appreciate it, and we'd love you to provide two pounds a month to help our charity and look we've done all the work for you we've got a direct debit form below filled out it's got your name in your details all you need to do is put your bank account sort code in we'll do the rest yeah that becomes much more difficult for somebody to realize that because that person has liked that page and therefore the emails come in and it's actually saying something that is true and using that as a way of establishing that trust with them so 
it is difficult and it's difficult for everybody. And I come back to the point I made earlier about lots of aspects of identity is, is, is broken. And the more we rely on consumers to, to not give out data, but then they give it out at different times, it, it makes it hard for people to understand um, when they should and when they shouldn't. And if if we pause on that just a little bit, so obviously as a consumer sitting in, in the general public, you would probably read the most headlines about data breaches. So X or Y companies let 100,000 records be exposed, a million records be exposed. And often that's narrative, that that's where you've got to be worried about your data being stored at somewhere who doesn't have good controls and it will get released in a batch. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the actual fraud, though, is that where most of these compromise of identities is happening? Or is it ongoing in lots of smaller, more sophisticated ways the whole the whole time? You know, if, if we're thinking about what should we try to do to protect ourselves? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a mixture. So both, both cause an issue. But I think, you know, when you, when you think of some of the large data breaches that have happened in some of the cases, the actual data that's been compromised on the face of it doesn't look that sensitive, to be honest with you. They're like names, addresses, whatever. And you sort of think, well, if someone has got that data, you know, what, what can they actually do with it? But it's almost like the start of, of what they can then build on from there. So a typical chain of, of a data breach might be breach happens. That data is then uh, made available on the dark web to people who want to buy. It may just be some information. It may include passwords and things, which they can then and they might have a username and a password for something. And, you know, unfortunately, we are creatures of habit or they use the same password and then add a number one on the end of it or add a number one and an exclamation mark on the end of it. And I'm imagining lots of people suddenly going and changing their passwords as a result of that because we all do it because it's hard to remember them. And, you know, there's a lot to be done in the authentication space. And there's lots of good work being done to remove the need for passwords and using things like biometrics to access things. Well, you know, today we still have that issue. So fraudsters will buy that data. They might get enough from that to be able to, to do something. But if they haven't, then they will go about social engineering to actually try and pick up more data. And that'll, that'll be take a number of forms. So, you know, what is fraud? Well, it's intentional deception for personal gain. In most forms, the fraudster's looking for money or something they can convert into money. You know, that's what, that was what interests them. And so therefore... If financial services companies that offering loans, for example, well, there's a direct correlation. If I can defraud this company or scam this company into sending that money to me, then I've got the money and off, off I go kind of thing. So it feels like there's a quicker exit from those things. But um, 
they will sort of have that information that they picked up from the dark web and they'll also then sort of test the other controls they're trying to bypass and keep sort of testing to see what sort of can try and work out what controls are in place. Again, to come back to your example earlier in the call where a, a bank might be asking you for certain information in order to prove your identity. If the fraudster then keeps trying to attack that service to understand what that requirement is, they then like know, well, I need to go and find out this information from this individual and we'll therefore try to social engineer them. So you know, it'll, it'll always be a problem as long as there's you know, the, the control of proving identity falls onto the consumer. Again, not to keep making the same point over and over. No, but well, I think also what's interesting there, we're talking about the single password. We've got to make sure we're not using identity in a way where it's just the same set of data, that there is something more interactive, which is the location data, the device data. You know, when I first opened my bank accounts, it was my identity number assigned basically at birth in South Africa. So you know, that never changes. And then something like your address. But there wasn't much beyond that. Maybe they had some questions that I'd set up, but guessable or find outable questions around you know, what was your first pet or your first school or your mother's maiden name. And if those were ever once compromised, they were always compromised because none of that ever changed. Whereas it does feel now that at least there's a movement away from that, from static data that stops using a social security number, an ID number, and starts to use something that's more dynamic. Maybe biometrics, obviously, that is still static, but the device that's reading it can read all sorts beyond just a picture. Clever things in the background to make sure that it's you being photographed, you being videoed. But I guess as with everything, it's an arms race and the fraudsters are getting more sophisticated uh, just as quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the one hand, we as consumers would hope for a scenario whereby we never ever have to put in passwords, usernames to access things that we do today. And also when we enroll into a process that we don't have to provide anything really. And it's all just done instantly, seamlessly and without any, any issues. You know, I guess that's the future goal for a lot of organizations. You know, technology is advancing. There's lots of really good ways to adopt services to help to do that. But then there's always going to be, I guess, exceptions. You know, for further enhanced sort of challenges need to take place during that interaction to establish whether this is the genuine customer or not. And you know, if you if you get caught in that, then you know your experience won't be the same as as others. But you know, things are moving on, and I think you know. It's an interesting time, really, and, and, and you're right in that in a short period of time, and certainly over the last couple of years with the pandemic, we've seen quite a lot of businesses accelerating their digital plans, and, and, and therefore, you know, it's, 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 it's giving this much more priority in a lot of organizations. Yeah, which is a similar message that I'm hearing from collections teams who are in a similar boat often. Yeah, if we accept we are going to inconvenience one in a thousand, one in 10,000 people, let's make sure that stopping the transaction is done in the best possible way. So perhaps it's just a case of the fraud teams working with customer experience teams to make sure that where we do have to block somebody, inconvenience somebody, pause a transaction or an application, that is done not in a policeman-style way of this is stopping here because I say so, but that we build a, a nice process around that to limit the felt inconvenience. We're, we're, we're at time now, so... I know you've said you're very busy already. Do you want to uh, talk about how people can reach you and the work you're doing now? Or have you got enough on your plate that you would rather just uh, sign off? Yeah, this is the point in the uh, 
the podcast where I feel like the chat show host plugging a book or whatever. No, I'm, I'm happy to give a plug to the work that I'm doing. So yeah, if anybody needs help in terms of scaling the business in fraud solutions or, or putting fraud defenses in place, yeah, I'm very happy to to chat and you can get me either through LinkedIn or through my email address, which is john.cannon at Oakford. That's like Oak as in a tree and Ford as in a small stream. Oakfordconsulting.co.uk. I will put those details in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for making the time. Certainly, I think it will be very interesting. The audience, as I said, also my first job was in fraud, so it's something close to my heart. Identity, though, I've probably done it a bit of a disservice by talking about it in fraud, where it is now far more encompassing than simply a background part of the fraud process. It is something, as you say, that's central to our lives, not even just in financial services to to most interactions we do today. So, yeah, thank you very much. It was great catching up. Glad I could be part. Thanks, Brendan. And thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share it on your podcast player of choice. And I'll see you next Thursday when we talk BNPL in Spain, Mexico, and Poland with Jaime Moran of Busy. Hopefully I was going to take like about three months off just have a bit of downtime. And I guess once my network got to here, I was, was moving. Got a, a, a few consultancy contracts or advisory roles. Um, and it, I ended up having a couple of weeks. But during that two weeks, I ended up doing a load of meetings anyway. So it's just, <laughs> I don't feel like I've had much of a break. But it's not like you can sort of turn around to people and say, yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll come back in three months and hopefully you'll still be needing some help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 